Good morning, church. Hey, I'm sitting down. I'm not feeling 100% today, a little dizzy. Not exactly sure why. I've had vertigo before, uh, so maybe, but we'll see. So I'm going to preach. If I start to stand up, Kyle has promised to come catch me. If I start to tip over, that's why he's sitting in the back row. So it uh, should be a good time. Uh, we are continuing our series called In Jesus' Name, Amen. Not only continuing, next week we finish the book of John. Three and a half years. Three, and I'm not, that's the first time I'm not being sarcastic. Three and a half years it's taken us to get through this letter, which is ironic because Jesus' earthly ministry was three and a half years. We did not do this on purpose. It had more to do with COVID and other reasons to why it took us so long to finish this. But three and a half years. Jesus' earthly ministry began with John the Baptist or John the Baptizer preparing the way to where we are now. As Justin just read, Jesus has died, he's risen again, and now over these 40 days, he's showing himself to all the disciples and many others. Today, we will unpack what happened when Jesus showed himself to his disciples and to Thomas specifically, who was known as Doubting Thomas. Poor Thomas. So, I have a question for you. How many of you are skeptical? You can raise your hands. I'm not going to make fun of you. Okay, good for you, good for you. All right, good. By skeptical, I mean you do not necessarily jump on the bandwagon of the newest and greatest thing. You have your reservations about anything that seems too good to be true. You prefer to wait things out rather than test things out. Skepticism is not a bad thing, unless being skeptical creates a closed-mindedness and an unwillingness to look at facts and reality. As we studied last week, Jesus physically rose from the dead, and Peter and John both had raced to the empty tomb. Who won? John, he won, after Mary Magdalene had found the grave site disturbed. Not only has the tomb been found empty, but as I said last week, an empty tomb by itself proves nothing. But an empty tomb plus some sightings, that starts to build a case for a possible resurrection. What we read last week was that Jesus had shown himself to Mary Magdalene or the Marys, if you're reading other gospel accounts, and now he will show himself to the disciples, the men who had followed him, and as we have read, will continue what is known as Jesus's unfinished work of proclaiming the gospel message to the ends of the earth. So we're going to pick up in verse 19 of chapter 20. You can follow along on the screen or in your own Bibles. Here's what it says in verse 19. On the evening of that first day of the week... When the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Can you say peace be with you? Yeah, we're going to say that a lot today. In fact, I called this sermon that. These disciples probably are discussing the fact that Jesus' body was no longer in the grave. Peter and John had been witnesses of this and that the women had claimed that they had seen the risen Jesus. The disciples were in this room and as John points out, with locked doors because of the fear of the ruling authorities that might be coming after these disciples of Jesus. This is all happening the evening of the empty tomb and the physical sightings of Jesus. And what happens? Jesus comes into a locked room. How? Scripture's silent on this, so don't worry about it. But just believe that this is what happens. And what does he say? Peace be with you. Thank you! There we go! Shalom in Hebrew. Shalom. How do you say it, Mike? Okay, more spit. Shalom, which is the customary Jewish greeting or farewell. 
I don't want to read too much into this greeting, even though I named the sermon this. I guess it beats boo, you know. <laughs> but the reality is that peace, shalom, wholeness was what Jesus came to bring. And that was not exactly the way most people would expect him to bring peace. See, in this culture, for the first century Jew, many would expect peace to come through the sword. Peace would come through war, and Jesus did bring war, but not with a sword, with a sacrifice. He brought war against the evil one. He brought war against sin. He brought war by purchasing forgiveness for the unjustified. Verse 20, after he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. What a scene, what a moment. Jesus shows that it is him, shows the scars on his hands and on his side, and the disciples were overjoyed because the Savior of the world was actually who he said that he was. There was no more despair, there was no more second-guessing if following Jesus for three and a half years amounted to anything or if it was worth it. Jesus wasn't just a good teacher or a spiritual guru. His sighting alive after he died was confirmation and validation that Jesus' sacrifice was sufficient for the forgiveness of sins, because Jesus is alive and well. And that confirmation, that evidence of justification, being justified, of his claims make it so we can walk with a limp in humility, because the gospel says that it's not about us. It's all about Jesus. And if we've wrestled with Jesus, he wins, not us. But we can also walk in a confidence knowing that our faith is not a blind faith, but one that is documented, evidenced, and justified through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, overcoming the grave and defeating it so that we can have life. Verse 21, and again Jesus said, peace be with you. Thank you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. Once again he says, peace be with you. I think based on his use of this two times in just a few verses, we must recognize that the peace being brought to us, the shalom being available is something that Jesus offers, something that we as Christians take for granted, but we also inherit if we've been found in Christ. It's not that trials or suffering don't take place when we become Christians, it's that we have a Christ who walks alongside us in each and every trial. And his presence, his blessing is more than enough to get us through the toughest challenges. In Christ, we don't get to go around challenges. We get to go through them, but with him. In Matthew chapter 11, 28 through 30, this is a pretty well-known passage that honestly was a bit cliche to me for many years. But based on what I've gone through as of late, I'm taking a ton of heart from this passage. It says, come to me. All you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Do you need rest for your souls today, church? For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I don't know what you're going through. I don't know what you're going through that you haven't let anyone else in on or recognize and no one else has acknowledged, but my God, He knows, and He invites you to have Him carry that alongside you. 
So again, verse 21, again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. Jesus begins with what some call the Johannine Great Commission. Jesus says that as the Father has sent the Son in the world, Jesus will now send these disciples who would become apostles into the world to preach and proclaim the finished work of Christ. The sent becomes the sender. First they were disciples serving the teacher. Now they, as apostles, are ambassadors of the teacher who will be sent to the ends of the earth with authority to provide the antidote to people's sin problem. Jesus, while retaining all authority on heaven and earth, has given these apostles authority to be his mouthpiece here on earth. And then we get to a passage that is confusing for many. Verse 22. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. So how did he give them authority? These special disciples who were becoming apostles were possibly given the Holy Spirit directly from Jesus' breath. Or were they? One of my favorite things about being a pastor, a preacher who gets to teach through books of the Bible, is that we don't leave any subject or situation uncovered, no rock left unturned that the Bible covers or implies. This statement that Jesus says after breathing on the disciples, receive the Holy Spirit, seems to be a tough one for theologians and commentators to reconcile. Because as most of you know, the Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost. That is when we see him appear indwelling the disciples. So what is Jesus doing here? Some commentators believe this was a foretaste of what was to come in about 50 days at Pentecost. The reality is that the Spirit of God was active on earth earth way prior to this moment. It wasn't just from Jesus' breath. The Spirit was hovering over the water that was created in verse 2 of Genesis 1. The Holy Spirit was throughout the Old Testament. The Holy Spirit descended like a dove onto the sun after Jesus' baptism. And the Spirit of God would make all of these appearances, but let's see what John chronicled earlier on in Jesus' ministry in John chapter 7, verses 37 through 39. It says, On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as Scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this he meant the Spirit, capital S whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the Spirit had not been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. The Spirit, while the third person of the Trinity, was the gift that was given if you were to believe in Jesus. Prior to his death, resurrection, and ascension, you could believe. And the Spirit, while not absent from the earth, was more of a guest star in both the Old Testament and New Testament prior to Jesus' glorification. It can be confusing to think that the Spirit was given twice, or that John contradicts what we read in the book of Acts, where the Spirit of God descends on the apostles and followers of Jesus in Acts chapter 2. But look at Jesus' words in chapter 14 of John. If you love me, keep my commands, and I I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. 
but you know him for he lives with you and will be future tense in you. I do believe that Jesus was pointing out that the Holy Spirit was with them, often leading, but yet to indwell them. Daniel, one of our elders, and Malik, our worship leader, were meeting and studying this passage, which is hard to understand and interpret. But they both were drawn to this passage in the book of Luke that shares a parallel version of the same story from a different perspective. So Luke chapter 24, and I I want you to kind of have your skepticism goggles on as you read this. It says in verse 36, while they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said, they were startled and frightened, thinking that they saw a ghost. He said to them, why are you troubled and why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet, and while they did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it, and he ate it in their presence. He said to them, this is what I told you while I was with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written, that the Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance and for for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I'm going to send you what my Father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. See, the parallels are there, even though the order and exact words may be similar and yet different. He says, peace be with you. He shows his hands and his feet. Luke adds that he was hungry and that they didn't understand from the scriptures when Jesus said that he would die and rise again, even though John includes this regarding himself and Peter in the passage that we studied last week. And here is where the parallel isn't obvious, but is there. John says, Jesus said, receive the Holy Spirit, and he breathed it on them, and look at how Luke says it again. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written, the Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead, and on the third day, repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I'm going to send you what my Father has promised, but stay in the city until you've been clothed with power on from high. He opened their minds to the scriptures. This is what the Holy Spirit does. Jesus is reiterating the message of the gospel, that Jesus had to live, that he had to die, that he had to rise again so that repentance for the forgiveness could be preached and happen among the nations. John may be sounding a little bit more charismatic than Luke, but it's the same thing. The Holy Spirit is the initiator and He is the decoder of what the Word of God means. Why? Because the Spirit of God is the third person of God who wrote the Word of God so that we could know the Son of God. Let me say that again. The Spirit of God is the third person of God who wrote the Word of God so that we could know the Son of God. So John points out that the Spirit will need to be received. It sounds like a command rather than an offer. And it did not mean now he indwells you, but that he is preparing them for about 50 days later at Pentecost when the third person of the Trinity would be gifted to them and others in the upper room. 
what most commentators point out when it comes to this was that Jesus breathing on them was this foretaste. It was a deposit, the preparation for the Spirit to come and indwell, yet they were to receive the power of the Spirit. They didn't have it yet because Jesus was yet to ascend and the Spirit was yet to descend. But look at how Jesus continues in verse 23. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Hmm. See any way this could be misinterpreted? In fact, it has been for thousands of years. To treat a person, priest or bishop, or even a church as the one who can forgive sins is a misinterpretation of what Jesus is saying here. This is a difficult phrase, and I know that many religions have attempted to give authority to their leaders, their priests, but I believe Jesus was making known here was that under the influence of the Holy Spirit, as they were led, they would be led in line with God's will, and that those that God forgave, the apostles were for, would forgive, and vice versa. The disciples would become apostles uh, in this ministry, and as Luke said, it is written that the Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins would be preached in the name to all the nations. And then he reminded them to stay because he would send his spirit. See, God is truly the only one that can forgive sins. Look at how David puts it in Psalm 51. In Psalm 51, 1 through 4, have mercy on me, O God, David says. According to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Only God can blot out our sins, church. Only He can forgive them. Only against Him have we sinned and created a chasm between us and a Creator, yet God gave us a way to come to Him. While guilty, we are still seen as innocent by God because Jesus hands us His innocence. So verse 24, now Thomas, also known as Didymus, the twin, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So, moving to Thomas, who would not, was not around with the other disciples when Jesus entered the locked room, verse 25, so the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Thomas is known as? Poor guy. He gets a really bad rap. See, the thing about doubting Thomas is he's like most of us, isn't he? Unless I see it, I will not believe it. This is how we tend to be. And yet Thomas, after hearing the testimonies of his peers, says an ultimatum that I think a lot of people emulate in their ignorance. They fleece God by saying, unless this or that happens, unless you show yourself God, the reality is the God who is tangible in his effects on people and circumstances, is ignored by those who want him to manifest himself in a physical form for their amusement, for their lack of faith, and for their high view of themselves. You know why I can say that? Because I used to be this person. I used to think that I was so important that God had to physically appear in order for me to believe in him. So did he? Yes and no. 
The resurrection of Jesus documented and talked about for 2,000 years is more than enough proof for me to believe that Jesus is who he says that he is. The evidence of his death, the evidence of the empty tomb, the evidence of the reaction of the disciples who would become apostles, and the transformation that took place after they claimed that they saw Jesus alive after he died, the documentation of the four Gospels, the many writings about Jesus in his time period outside of the Bible, and the change that took place in culture in the first century because of something, honestly, for me, It would take more faith to believe that he didn't rise from the the dead than it does to believe that he did. Because of how much changed in and around Jerusalem almost overnight for the next many years after the year of 33 AD. I've said this before, but for me it would be intellectual suicide for me to deny the resurrection of Jesus. Based on what I have studied, read, and wrestled with. The resurrection of Jesus, based on the reactions and responses of the disciples, has more validity to it than any other religious claim in all of human history. Let me say that again. The reactions and responses of the disciples has more validity to it than any other religious claim in all of human history. And I think that is why Paul says that if the resurrection of Jesus didn't happen in 1 Corinthians 15, 14, then our preaching and faith are useless. Because we can hang our hat on this truth. We can stake our claim. We can, make our sta- uh, we can make our stand on the fact that Jesus rose from the dead and that the witnesses of this did not just ignore it and go on with their lives, but as we read in the book of Acts, they were eternally changed to proclaim the good news that Jesus was alive. So imagine I was late to service. Imagine, you know, you guys did service and Uh, There was communion, and then there were a few songs, and as I walked in late, I was supposed to preach, and they played the video hoping that I was just going to show up, and then all of a sudden, I showed up, and I put on the microphone, and I tested, uh, testing one, two, three, and I got up here, and I looked exactly like this, and I said, church, I need to sit down, hold on, I said, church, I am really sorry I'm late. But on the way here, I decided to walk here. It's only two miles. I only live two miles from here. But I decided to walk. And on my way here, I got hit by a semi-truck. And I looked exactly like I do right now. It doesn't doesn't really look like I got hit by a semi-truck, does it? My clothes aren't torn. There's no blood. There's no oil on my face. I look totally fine. You would just assume that my excuse was that I got hit by a semi-truck and I considered all of you a fool and you would believe that. But the irony about believing in Christ is that often there are people that claim that they had seen Jesus alive after he died since this time period, or there are people, let's get really practical, that are alive today that have said, man, I have come in contact with Jesus and he has changed me. And yet you look like the person who walks into a room and says, you've been hit by a semi-truck and yet nothing's changed. The reality is that when we come in contact with the God of the universe, things change. We look different. And these disciples, their lives were changed. 
They were pretty timid. They were pretty scared. They were pretty freaked out. And yet what we will see and what we will study starting in the book of, uh, or starting in January in the book of Acts is the fact that the apostles could not stop talking about the reality that Jesus rose from the dead. Verse 26, a week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and went, boo! No, he didn't. He said, peace be with you. Does anyone get a Mr. Deeds vibe here with Jesus? Does anyone understand that reference? Does anyone ever watch Adam Sandler movie? It's fine. John points out that a week later, a similar scene takes place. The disciples are in a room with the doors locked that John points out. Thomas is there, and Jesus just shows up, and he says, peace be with you. Verse 27, then he said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Jesus did what he doesn't do for most of us. He literally did what Thomas had said as an ultimatum. Considering Jesus wasn't there and the other disciples probably didn't tell Jesus because they were a little freaked out by this, this could be a miracle in and of itself that he knew what Thomas had said and thought because Jesus is God. But I kind of hope after studying the book of John for three and a half years, we're all on the same page that John believes that Jesus is God. He wrote this entire letter, 21 chapters, pointing out that Jesus is God through his own personal experience with Jesus. So look at Thomas after getting his ultimatum fulfilled, at getting to see Jesus alive. Here's what he said in verse 28. Thomas said to him, my Lord, my God. Thomas's response was not to check the internet for any conspiracy theories or to ask Jesus for ID. There was no more doubting. There were no more questions to be asked or proof to be given. Thomas responds in worship, church. Unadulterated worship. He doesn't check to see who's watching or if it's the proper time. He worships Jesus because Jesus is alive. Verse 29. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. I don't know how you read that, but like I've told you guys, uh, total pagan, had no relationship with the Lord, started to hear about him for real at 19, became a Christian at 20. And with that cynical lens that I grew up with, I still kind of hear this verse because it feels like a bit of a cop-out. Jesus isn't around And he isn't going to just show up in a worship center. Hey, Mike, quick, could you lock the door and see if Jesus will just show up and say, peace be with you? No, I'm kidding. What Jesus was implying was that for the next 2,000 years and counting, 2021 right now, Jesus would be away, allowing the world to continue to groan and settle. And one day, and I'm not sure when, and neither are you, he will return. But until then, The blessing is believing without seeing. It is trusting without having every answer answered ever. Faith, if you're taking notes, you're going to want to hear this. Faith is belief in action. It's when belief and trust collide. It's one of the most powerful emotions of man to have faith in God based on his past performance. You can and should trust his word and future promises. And Thomas, a great example for all of us, doubted. 
but then he trusted. Doubt, church, is not a sin. But allowing that doubt to be your excuse to not trust God is. I began my ministry not too long after I became a Christian back in 20, or 2001. I shared my testimony in front of our entire church within a few months of becoming a Christian after getting baptized about a week later. I then was asked to preach my first sermon not too long after that. And in a secular sense, I was on the fast track to becoming a preacher. The problem with that was humility isn't something you can just get. It's done to you. And that tends to require some heartaches, some trials, some mistakes, and some willingness to own those mistakes. Really, in the beginning of my ministry, I wasn't planning on being a pastor at all. I wanted to be an apologist, an evangelist. I wanted to just go tell people about Jesus and not have to worry about, what does it mean when Jesus said, I breathe the Holy Spirit onto you and have to read 50 books to figure it out? I was kind of, and this is making me sound better than I am, but I was kind of the JV Bible answer man, but it wasn't necessarily because of my understanding of God's Word, because really I didn't have a very good grasp of it at the beginning of my faith. But it was my understanding of apologetics, it was my understanding of answers to questions about God and history that gave me a lot of different platforms to share. See, I felt like I could argue people into the kingdom of God. But that, too, was a great example of my misunderstanding of God's Word and really the ability that only God has to draw people to Himself. Those three baptisms last week were not because, oh, actually, I had very little to do with it, because they had all been trusting and following Jesus prior to being here. But it wasn't because of some good preacher. It wasn't because of some good outreach event. It was because God in His wholeness and sweetness and beauty decided to draw them to Himself. Now, I've wrestled with doubts as a Christian, like I'm sure all of us have, but one of the many things I am grateful for when it comes to the faith that I have is that it isn't rooted in hearsay or just other people's study, but a long, drawn-out investigation of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. There are a lot of things I don't know or understand. I want to be clear about that. But one thing I am confident in, one thing I am sure of, is that the evidence in history points to a resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And there has not been an argument that I've heard, an argument that I've debated or come up with myself that does a better job of describing why these disciples were willing to worship and give up their lives for the cause of Christ and let others know how their life could be found in Jesus' name if Jesus were still in the grave. So, real quick, I need a... I'm probably just going to sit here. So I need a volunteer. Who wants to be a volunteer? Wow. So Melanie called on Dan. That's awesome. Dan Neathlin, would you come on up here? Thanks, Melanie. Appreciate that. Voluntelling. That's our next series. So this is Dan Neathlin. You guys know Dan. He's one of those who lead worship here at this church, and he's a dear friend of mine. And uh, I want to imagine real quick that you and I, we haven't, where did we go? We went to Boston Market, so that's not a good example. But let's, let's say we went to Pete's, which was right next to Boston Market, and literally all you're going to have to do is just stand there. So great job. So you and I are at Pete's on uh, El Camino and Scott, because that's the one that I tend to frequent, and we're there, and we're having a conversation. We're sitting by uh, outside 
at the tables, and right at the parking lot, we notice that a guy on a motorcycle shows up, and not like a hog, but like a wah-wah, one of those, Suzuki GSX-R750 to be specific. And as, as we're sitting there having a talk, we're talking about basketball, we're talking about football, we're talking about golf, we're talking about Jesus, uh, you know, not in that order. As we're talking about these things, the guy on the motorcycle parks his bike, he gets off his bike, and he goes into Panera. Because generally, if there's a Pete's, there's a Panera for some reason, and there's a Chipotle. It's weird. So he goes into Panera, and while you and I are talking about how the Warriors lost last night, spoiler, in case anyone missed it, uh, you know, and we're talking about that, the motorcycle that was parked right there starts to move. And this motorcycle starts to move in such a way that's a little bit like a transformer. And we see the motorcycle and it goes, duh, 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 duh. and now all of a sudden it looks like a motorcycle transformer, and it looks at us, it waves, and it runs away. So Dan and I are sitting there, and as this happens, we go back to talking about how Steph Curry's having an MVP year, right? No. We grab our phones, we're trying to record it, we're talking about this, we're literally freaking out. The police come and they start to ask us questions, and as they're asking us questions, they're like, what happened? I'm like, well, Dan and I were talking about the Warriors, and then, and then all of a sudden, motorcycle, doo, 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 and then it gets up, and then it walked off. And the people, the police that were there, and as they're hearing us tell this story, they're getting a little freaked out. And so they call that portion of Kaiser that isn't for our physical health, if you know what I mean. And we keep talking about this. And then the police take our report, and then they look at Dan and I, and they say, you know, you guys probably should, you know, sh what you're saying, you should probably, like, keep it to yourselves and not tell anyone. Real quick, are we going to keep that to ourselves? No. No. We're going to go on Oprah. We're going to go everywhere. We're going to be telling everyone what just happened. Why? Because what we knew about motorcycles was motorcycles tend to be motorcycles, not transformers that wave us at us and run away. Great job, Dan. Well done. Here's my point. The disciples saw something that was earth-changing, and they didn't keep it to themselves. They couldn't shut up about it. They were willing to go to their deaths. Why? Because what they knew to be true was no longer true. Dead men didn't stay dead because Jesus claimed that he was God. He lived the life none of us could. He died the death we should have died. And then he physically rose from the dead. And there's no way I would believe for one second that Jesus rose from the dead if it wasn't for the disciples' lives being totally changed. Why? Because he rose. And they saw it. And they couldn't keep it to themselves. John the disciple whom Jesus loves, writes this towards the end of his letter. He's got one more chapter. In verse 30, he says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. Now, this is true of the book of John. It's true of all the other gospels. It's true of the entire Bible, as Jesus did so much that are not recorded in the scriptures, but the things that were recorded were recorded so we could know Jesus. All of that that was written specifically in Scripture was written because of verse 31. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. As a leader in this church, as a pastor and elder, as one of the teachers with many other staff members and elders and teaching team and other leaders in this community, there's nothing we want more than for you to believe and follow Jesus. 
There's nothing we want more for you to not try to justify yourself, to not try to feel better about yourself by attending church, but to fulfill the purpose that each man, woman, and child have as being created in God's image and being invited to shalom, peace, wholeness, and restoration in relationship with God the Creator. This isn't found in our good works. This isn't found in anything external. It is found internally and eternally in knowing, loving, and trusting Jesus Christ for your salvation. But it must begin with acknowledgement that each one of us have sinned against God. And only He can forgive that sin. God doesn't forgive sins by our good outweighing our bad. God forgives sins wholly and exclusively through belief in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus as your sole means of justification. So do you believe that Jesus is Savior and Lord? Have you trusted Jesus? Have you confessed with your mouth and believed in your heart that Jesus is Lord and that He rose from the dead? If you have... I praise God for your confession, and I pray that you will continue to pursue Him, trust Him, and follow Him as He refines you more into His image. But even as I say that, maybe you're not sure. Maybe you haven't truly made a confession of faith to the Lord and to other people. I think both matter, because when God saves us, He saves us to a people, and He makes us a family. So if you're not sure if you've ever confessed to other people about your trust in Christ, there's a, a card in front of you. I want you to fill out a connect card in the pew in front of you so a pastor or leader can talk with you about your trust in Jesus and hopefully give you some practical ways to grow and pursue Christ even more. And if you have a prayer request, I want you to grab that card and I want you to just give us your prayer request because as a staff and eldership, we prayed for prayer requests when they come in and generally we'll get one or two, but the other week we got a ton and it was so encouraging for a good chunk of our staff meeting and elder meetings to just pray for the people of COV. So let us know, let us know what's going on so we can be praying for you. You can drop both of those in the offering box as you leave. Uh, if you came prepared to give, you can also drop your offering in that. But I want to encourage us as a people, as we've been studying the book of John forever, the hope is that you would know and trust and believe that Jesus is God. And that by believing and trusting that Jesus is God, your life would be changed because you've confessed that with your mouth, you believe that in your heart, you've trusted Him, and you're willing to walk this life, not trying to get around problems, but going through them with Him. Malik, would you come on up? And I'm going to pray for us. <sighs> Father, I know that Your Word is true. Man, I did not want to believe that when I was a pretty frustrated 19-year-old trying to disprove You. But I know your word to be true, and I know there are places where it contradicts me, and God, where I don't want to admit that, I'm sorry. Lord, I know that we as a people, a majority of us believe you, we believe in you, we've followed you, but God, I know that each and every single one of us have pieces of our lives we're unwilling to give to you, God. So Lord, I pray through the work of your Spirit, the one that indwells us, the one that 
lives inside of us because we've confessed with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that you rose from the dead, Lord. I pray that that spirit would convict us to admit our sin, to confess it, to be willing to put into practice the things that your word points out that we ought to be doing, not to justify ourselves, but because we're justified. And God, most importantly, I just pray that we would be a people that would emulate Christ, not out of trying to do good, but out of trying to love God with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind, and through that we could love others as ourselves. So God, thank you that you are good, and thank you that you're at work in this place. I pray as we sing this song of praise to you, God, because you have risen, that, Lord, we would trust this and live our lives knowing that this is true. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.